Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. First off, our interviewer, we have Soraya Nadia McDonald. Soraya McDonald is the award-winning cultural critic for The Undefeated, ESPN's premier platform covering race, sports, and culture. She writes about film, television, and the arts. She's the 2020 winner of the George Jean Nathan Prize for Dramatic Criticism, a 2020 finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Criticism, and the runner-up for the 2019 Vernon Jarrett Medal for Outstanding Reporting on Black Life. Soraya is a contributing editor for Film Comment and has contributed criticism to Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Her essay, Believe Me, Beads Believing That Black Women Are People, was published in the 2020 anthology, Believe Me, How Trusting Women Can Change the World. You can order that book from Skylight as well. Soraya was a 2018 Eugene O'Neill National Critics Institute Fellow, and she's a member of the New York Drama Critics Circle, New York Outer Critics Circle, Television Critics Association, and American Theater Critics Association. Before joining The Undefeated in 2016, she covered pop culture for The Washington Post, where she focused on issues surrounding race, gender, and sexuality. And tonight's guest and author of the new book, Wandering in Strange Lands, A Daughter of the Great Migration Reclaims Her Roots, is Morgan Jerkins. Morgan Jerkins is the New York Times bestselling author of This Will Be My Undoing. She is a senior editor at Zora Magazine, a division of Medium, whose work has been featured in The New Yorker, Vogue, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Elle, Rolling Stone, Lenny, and BuzzFeed, among many others. She lives in New York. Welcome, Morgan. Welcome, Soraya. I'm so happy you're here. Uh, I'm going to bring you up on screen and make myself small again so my face is not like the great and powerful Oz. <laughs> All right. Are we good? Yes. Hi, everyone. Um, So this is super exciting. I think uh, Morgan is going to kick us off uh, with a reading, and then we'll get into my questions, and then uh, questions from you guys. Okay. Thank you, everyone, for coming tonight. I am going to read a selection that was really near and dear to me, and it's about Black people's relationship to water. So I'm going to begin with that. My mother never learned how to swim. Her parents never taught her, and that didn't make sense to me. My mother and her siblings grew up in Atlantic City, a five-mile barrier island called Absecan Island that is located along the Jersey shore of the Atlantic Ocean. Surely if they were living that close to the water, they would have learned to swim in it, right? There were many Blacks who lived in Atlantic City just like my family. I wondered if my mother's peers didn't swim either. At one point, Atlantic City's Black population surpassed that of Harlem, where I live now. This was due in large part to the Great Migration intersecting with the hotel boom. After Atlantic City was incorporated in 1854, African Americans from the South migrated to the Jersey Shore in search of better paying jobs. 95% of African Americans lived there, worked as laborers or in the service industry at white-owned hotels. My grandfather, Fred II, whom I affectionately call Pop-Pop, was one of them. He washed dishes in a hotel whose name he cannot recall, and from there he went on to construction. Fred II was born in June 1943, and he worked in Atlantic City from the late 1950s to early 1960s, when Jim Crow was still in effect. Segregation in public spaces was maintained to appease white tourists from the South, who did not want to integrate with Black people. One of these segregated spots was Chicken Bone Beach, a beach exclusively for African Americans. My grandfather never swam there, Neither did my grandmother, Sylvia, whom he married in the mid-1960s. Sylvia gave birth to four children, and despite their proximity to water, none learned to swim. 
When I asked my mother why she never learned to swim while growing up on an island, she says after a pause, I don't know. I guess they, her parents, never taught us because they didn't want to lose us. I found her answer quite intriguing. If my mother and her siblings learned how to swim, then logically they would be able to return to shore. But maybe their knowledge of swimming wasn't what her parents feared most. Maybe it was a fear of who might kidnap them from the lake or river. It is estimated that 80% of enslaved Africans knew how to swim. But when the transatlantic slave trade was ongoing, some Africans forbade their children from swimming for fear of them being lost to them forever. The circumstances were different than they were 400 years before, but irrespective of time and space, my grandparents still felt an almost instinctive fear that their children might be taken away in the water. This intergenerational fear is one that can be explained through epigenetics, the study of how we inherit certain mechanisms without there being a change in our DNA sequences. Dr. Rachel Yehuda, professor of psychiatry at Aiken School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, conducted a study to gauge how trauma is passed down from Holocaust survivors and found that years later, their children inherited this PTSD because of how overactive their amygdala was. The amygdala is the site in the brain that is responsible for processing our emotions, retaining memory, and tapping into our survival instincts. Through the research, Dr. Yehuda concluded that when people experience trauma, their genes are affected, and now those influenced genes will pass on to their offspring. So sociologist Dr. Joy DeGuri added to the conversation about trauma transmission when she coined the phrase post-traumatic slave disorder to publicize the effects of trauma on the descendants of the enslaved. Carl Zimmer of the New York Times wrote in his Matter column that the history of African-Americans is shaped by two journeys, the transatlantic slave trade and the Great Migration. Both journeys involved one or many bodies of water. The Atlantic Ocean is one of the most traumatic sites in all of African-American experience. One third of all captured Africans died before their feet were ever planted on any dock in the Western Hemisphere. In the four centuries of the triangular trade, 10 to 11 million people were brought to the New World. This figure does not include those who died aboard the ships due to suicide or dehydration, nor those who were tossed overboard when sick from one of the rampant illnesses. The Atlantic Ocean is the unofficial burial ground for uncounted captured Africans, a sunken graveyard. Zimmer also reported that a team of geneticists found that genetically related African-Americans are usually found along the routes taken when their ancestors left the South. In light of this research, the aversion to water becomes explainable as an ingrained fear shared among many African-Americans throughout this country. This commonality is often discussed in media. Everybody knows black people can't swim. If we could, we wouldn't be here. Marsha Warfield, Chicago. I can't really swim. Today I took my first swim lesson since I was five. My dad learned in the 60s, so I feel like I'm ahead of schedule. John Legend, Ohio native. My dad almost killed me one time. When I was younger, I couldn't swim. Nobody ever taught me how to swim. My dad picked me up, grabbed me, and threw me in seven feet. As soon as I hit the water, I almost died immediately. Kevin Hart, Philadelphia. So we have to spend our Saturday with people that we don't like so that we can, you can prove to someone whose opinion you don't care about that you can swim, which might I remind you, you cannot. Dr. Rainbow DeDre, Blackish, Los Angeles. Because this water drowned my family, this water mixed my blood. Frank Ocean, New Orleans by way of Long Beach, California. I had recognized that the problems of African-Americans with water was not specific to my own family through jokes, lyrics, and script writing through comedy. What we thought about water wasn't funny, and yet I laughed. I knew that comedy often comes from pain, and I wanted to know more about this pain. How and where and how many times was it inflicted? Could the South provide me with any answers? All right. Morgan, I hope you recorded the audiobook for this too, because I could just listen to you read like the whole thing. I did. I did record the audiobook. It's like all eight hours of it. <laughs> all right. Let's let's get into it. Okay, so you know, so first off, I always do this like whenever I'm interviewing somebody, I just ask the nosiest question first. Cause then, you know. <laughs> Everything, everything from there is just downhill. Oh yeah, um, please do. 
But so, you know, recently um, I was listening to an interview with Samantha Irby um, talking about her latest book. And she, like, was telling a joke, but there was some truth in this about her ability to sort of be unburdened in her writing um, and the things that she writes about because her parents have passed. Um, and obviously, um, her parents are still with you. Um, and you've written, you know, this, this book, uh, searching for and awakening um, a lot of these sleeping dogs that have, you know, lame, lime, whatever, mm -hmm. in your family's history. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's all these things that, you know, you, you sort of sort of resurface, like, well, I know there has to be like some sort of deeper reason for why we don't do X, mm -hmm. as it, you know, that's not just, we don't go in the water just so we don't mess up our hair. Um, and so what I'm wondering is, um, how did you approach that, that sensitivity with your family, like when you decided that you were going to write this book? Well, the thing is, is it was interesting because when I wrote my first book, This Will Be My Undoing, I didn't show them anything. I didn't want to interview them. I didn't want to have too many cooks in the kitchen. Um, and even with this book, I, I didn't want myself I didn't want myself to be the anchor of it. I I was so vulnerable in my first book that I kind of just psychologically closed up, and because of that, the first couple of drafts weren't coming together. My editors were like, "You need to get more personal." I was like, "I can't." Uh, <laughs> and then I realized that there's no way that you can do a story about the Great Migration and about African American experiences and think that you don't have a stake in it. You can't, I couldn't be a distant observer. So I think for me, um, I tried to be really sensitive with my family members and talk about their lives, but just say at the end, like as the part that I read, it just wasn't enough for me. But it's like, I don't really know. Instead of hammering in, in the prose, like, well, why didn't you know? And, and sort of mm -hmm. judging them or condemning them for these omissions. It's like, well, I'm going to go for them which is just the nature of nature of the book in general, the nature of the journey in general. Mm. So I think the way in which I crafted it was just like, I had a conversation with someone, they had these gaps and I wanted people to be able to read the gaps in between the lines as the subtext. And then, <laughs> me, and then me posing this question as I just did at the end of the reading. And then I start the investigation through traveling and bringing in all these secondary resources and combining them with interviews and people who I met along the way. So you are like, I don't know, like I just, I think of you as like Morgan in Harlem. Like you just feel like such a natural creature of Harlem. Um, and this book took you to like the low country of like South Carolina and Georgia. You went to Louisiana, you went to Oklahoma, you went to Los Angeles. Um, tell me about like going to those places, you know, cause I mean, it, the title is Wandering in Strange Land. Yes. Um, and how you, I guess, sort of reconcile that feeling of unfamiliarity um, with the knowledge that your your people are from there. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I'm going to answer in a roundabout way, and then I'm going to hit the bullseye. I promise. <laughs> okay. um, so... Before I went into any territory, I already knew I'm black, but I can't act too familiar with black people I don't know, especially in black, <laughs> with black people who are, are a part of very vulnerable communities, communities where people of an establishment like myself would go there to create scholarship and not give proper acknowledgement to these people who they were mining for their stories. Um, and so every time before I embarked on a certain place, I would get in touch with people there prior to that journey to let them know who I was, to let them know the book deal that I was doing, let them know the publisher, all of that. So they knew that I wasn't playing around. And I remember I was talking to a woman. Her name was Tiffany Young. She was my liaison for Georgia, which is the first stop that I went on in the book. And she told me, she was like, when you come down here, it's going to be nothing like you've ever seen before. And she was right. It was, it, it, it's just the culpability 
of that connection with your ancestors, with the magic and the, and the spirituality of the place, but also just this, how high the stakes are to preserve these communities that we're so indebted to. It was so intense. When I went to Louisiana, it was hard for me to reconcile things because there were certain things I thought I knew about black identity, certain assumptions I made that were not true. Um, they weren't true. And it and that's why when I talk about the Louisiana section, for example, I wrestle with that discomfort and I bring it up multiple times over. I wrestle with the discomfort because I wasn't taught certain things about African-American history or black history in America um, in, in public schools. I wasn't taught it for my family and it just didn't fit the narrative. And I wanted to, people to sit in that discomfort with me in those intimate spaces because in certain times I was by myself. So I wanted people to say, like, I don't know how to reconcile it, but maybe I don't need to. Because even though I'm doing all this research, I still i am not going to know my ancestors 100%. And a part of me doesn't want to know them 100%. I want, <laughs> I, want, I, want to, I want to be able to protect their interiorities. So it's okay to have their little mystery there. You know, you don't need to know everything about Black people, even if it is your own family. That's okay. Yeah. I feel like it's so auspicious that your book is released this week, like, because there's so much in it that I think enriches, like, other things that I'm also consuming, you know, because, like, there's Black is King, right, Beyonce's new film that just came oh, yeah. out, there's Isabel Wilkerson, like, you have these passages where you, it's, particularly when you're talking about, um, Creole heritage and sort of breaking down the caste system within that um, and also trying to wrestle with this sort of like superimposed black white binary that exists in the United States and how like Creole basically just kind of like just throw a wrench into that whole paradigm. <laughs> yes, uh, a since, lot. You know, since you mentioned that, Mm -hmm. um, tell me a little bit about like what you found out about your own history that was at odds with with what you thought you knew or what you'd been taught. Like, what was it that made you uncomfortable? Oh, uh, first off, I didn't even know I was Creole until three or four years ago. Um, Creole was not a term, you know, that I heard living in South New Jersey. And if I did hear it, it was like, oh, those are some light-skinned uppity black people who don't mm -hmm. want to be don't want to claim black they'd rather claim their french and their spanish and their indigeneity but they don't want to claim black um mm -hmm. and i grew up in the pub i grew up in the public health excuse me the public school system and i was just taught um you your ancestors came from the west coast the west side of, of the african continent they were brought across the Atlantic Ocean to the colonies. They were enslaved, emancipation, reconstruction, uh, Harlem Renaissance, civil rights, <laughs> Obama. And then as <laughs> the way that I thought about my blackness was uh, completely on the other side of the spectrum of white people with regards to social and and cultural and actual capital i thought of my blackness as the complete opposite of whiteness just a complete and total suppression and and um oh my god i'm seeing creole people in the in the chat so i'm just looking at them like hey y'all um so uh, <laughs> I, I thought it was completely different and my people i'm gonna just say it because there's creepy people in there my people from saint martin parish it's in the Acadiana, which is like the, a huge Creole Cajun country. Um, and um, I didn't know that there were free people of color in my family. I didn't know free people of color even existed prior to Lincoln. I didn't know that there were free people of color who were slave owners themselves. Now, granted, there were free people of color who owned slaves that were family members that they eventually manumitted or freed but they still participated in the plantation economy. And I also found out through my research that there were black slave owners, thousands of them yeah. across the country. I I did not like that. I did not. <laughs> I was like, 
no, because that's not the narrative, right? Because now mm -hmm. that complicates what our ancestors did to survive. To tell myself, you know, I'm not just a descendants of enslaved black people. I'm not just a descendants of white slave owners. I'm also descendants of free people of color who also participated in the plantation economy. That makes mm -hmm. things a lot more complicated and also complicates our notions of survival. And that was hard for me to do because as I don't know if any of you seen this in the audience when Beyonce um, talked about in the September issue of Vogue, and she's the descendant of a black enslaved black woman who fell in love or a, a white slave master fell in love with a black enslaved black woman and had married and had kids. People were like, no, 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 no. Like, that's not true. She just, you know, all this. And I said, wait a minute, though. That's her oral history. That's what's been mm -hmm. passed down for hundreds of years. And if you talk to other Creole people, guarantee they're mm -hmm. going to have some type of similarity to that lineage. And why are we rejecting it? And I think it's so important as writers and researchers to sit with that discomfort, but to try our best to not anesthetize these lives that we're trying mm -hmm. to, you know, you know, bring to the surface. Because if we do that, then that's just counterproductive to the work in general. So that I think Louisiana was definitely the one spot, my you know my one of my ancestral homelands where I had to sit with so much discomfort about my lineage, and it was it was deep. <laughs> yeah, it's it's such a like thorny, complicated place that just like refuses to fit into any one box. I mean, you know, I think, you know, if we're talking about another book that I think actually, you know, is like great companion reading with yours, um, it's Good Booty by Ann Powers, who's the um, music critic for NPR. Yeah. But she starts basically, she spends like a great deal of time talking about how there's this sort of unique element of cultural and ethnic, you know, exchange, mixture, sex, whatever you want to call it, that's happening in Louisiana, right? With the quadrille balls. Oh, yeah. Everything, you know, yeah. that right. like are, we are just not really like well equipped to deal with. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, it's like I have distant cousins who don't identify as as African American. Distant cousins who live in St. Landry, who live in St. Landry Parish. If any of you are familiar with that place, they do not call themselves African American. They say I am Creole. And the reason why they say that is because Prior to Louisiana becoming a part of the United States through the Louisiana Purchase, Creole was an actual legal and it was an actual status. And so for me, like I identify after coming from Louisiana, after being recognized there in ways that I didn't expect, I identify as an African-American and a Creole person. The reason why is because I have family who are from Maryland, you know, Georgia, Florida, but I also have family members who were Creole people prior to them being a part of the United States. And they did not exist in that strictly dichotomized black white binary that happens when Louisiana became American. So it's important to, for me to hold both these truths, even if they may collide against each other at many different points. So one of the things that also like jumps out, um, from your book is the work that it's doing um, basically to sort of to speak a lot of things into existence and to make sure that we don't forget them because you're highlighting the work um, of curators around the country who've basically been doing that um, where in places where you just see you know sort of collective memories of black lineage just sort of slipping away not being recognized by sort of majority white historical societies. Mm -hmm. um, tell me a little bit about, you know, going to the low country and sort of unfurling, you know, these issues that are taking place um, with the Gullah Geechee people and this, you know, this sort of massive land loss. And it's not really loss, it's really stealing. If we're, oh, yeah. If we're being honest. Oh, yeah. 
you know, that, that has sort of taken place. Well, okay, so I'm gonna go back to what Tiffany Young said about how it, it, it was gonna be nothing like I ever seen before. That was one of it, land loss or land theft. And it's something that reverberates throughout the country, especially in Oklahoma, for example. Mm -hmm. So what I will say is this, one of the places that I went to was Sapelo Island. Sapelo Island is one of the larger barrier reefs, excuse me, larger barrier islands off the coast of Georgia. At one point, there were hundreds of Gullah Geechee people there. Um, it used to be one large plantation. And after, you know, emancipation, they tilled the land themselves. And then and now it's only like maybe 50 Gullah Geechee people left. The people there are at one time in the year was being taxed 500 percent more than the previous year. This is something that Tiffany told me. And I said, no, no way. There's no way. But then I looked that up. And the New York Times reported on it, the, ex the exact figure that she said. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking about how when I went to Butler Island Plantation, which is a, which is a rice plantation, and there's an historical marker there where um, it talks about the levees and the dikes and the engineering and the famous mm -hmm. white author that went there to chronicle her time. It says nothing of the enslaved black people who involuntarily sacrificed their lives and their bodies to cultivate that rice, to make that plantation what it was. In fact, Tiffany Young is a descendant of some of those people that were on that plantation. And she told me that she had been trying for years to get an historical market there and, to, for, and she can't. It costs thousands of dollars. And when I went to the website, it said, well, we don't like, you know, you can't have any adulatory language for an historical marker. But they praised the author, Fanny Kimball, on the historical marker. So, so, like, so what is it? Like, what, what's going on here? And this is why it, there, there was such a, a, an unevenness between what I was being told and what I was seeing. And it happened mm. again when I went to Hilton Head. Hilton Head, as you all know, if you may not know, Hilton Head is one of the most famous vacation resorts in South Carolina. But the thing about it is, is in, in that county, Beaufort County, Beaufort County, South Carolina, Gullah Geechee people used to have like 14 million, they've lost 14 million acres of land in that part of South Carolina alone to make way for the Marriott's, the Sinestas, mm. the restaurants, all of that. They're pushed to the margins. And I was just overwhelmed by how much loss and devastation, even if you go to Hilton Head, the gated community there, the gated communities there are named after former plantations. There's a cemetery that's right near one of the famous golf tournaments that people can't readily mm -hmm. access. They have to get a pass to go there. They have to pay money to go there. And these are people that have been on this land. Their family's been on this land for centuries. And that's what was heartbreaking for me because as much as I admired their resistance, it made me think about the conversations we have about reparations, for example. It's not just about reparations and giving us money now. What about the land that was taken from us? You know what I'm saying? It's not just about we'll give money to your schools, we'll give money for, you know, what about mm -hmm. the land? Are you gonna allow, are you gonna let Marriott Resort give, give back the land? I mean, it's just like, are, are you gonna allow these vacation resorts to give back the land? And that is what is so important like today. And I think it's so present when we talk about, you know, black lives and black communities, it's, it's the loss. It's that mm -hmm. displacement that actually causes us to migrate. And what happens to the people that stay behind? It's that much harder of a fight. It's just, it's heartbreaking. I mean, you know, we just had this Supreme Court case, um, you know, that was recently ruled on you know, that basically like gives a bunch of indigenous land or a bunch of land back to indigenous people in Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm reading this and I'm thinking like millions of acres just gone. Um, you know, where we, you know, we have basically just decided, I mean, and that's true in New York too, right? Like, you know, we have, you know, enslaved black people who are, um, who are, you know, basically underneath the parks that we enjoy there, right? Like the history of walls. Right, it's just, right. It's everywhere. And that's what I'm saying. Um, like when we talk about the Tulsa massacre in 1921, mm -hmm. people say, oh, now they're trying to find mass graves. They're there. The same thing in Texas with the, with the bones of convict laborers. 
who brought wealth to that region because of the sugar. They're mm. they're there, and, and it makes me think about how many other places are are the bones of our ancestors underneath these municipal parks, underneath all of these recreational facilities that we have for pretty much predominantly white, well-to-do, upperly mobile people to enjoy. It just disappeared. And it's that erasure. What does that do to us, you know, who are trying to uncover it? Yeah, especially because I think, you know, that feeling of rootlessness is something that I think ties so many African-American people together. And it's not just okay, so if I like plug my information into Ancestry.com, maybe I can't go back any further than say, you know, the 1860s, if even that far, right? It's, it, it's there is a physical element to that. Yep. Um, and, you know, one of the things I've realized as I've gotten older, because if you'd asked me this when I was like 25, if you'd asked me if I thought that there were ghosts, I would have been like, no. Uh-oh. And then, this is what I did. <laughs> I went to the University of Virginia last year to that campus. Oh, Lord. walked around. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that place is haunted. Those enslaved Black people are haunting that campus. And you could not convince me otherwise. And so, but the thing is, is that that opened my mind when I started reading the passages that you wrote about root work, about this, <laughs> about this lady Iris, who like part of me really wants to meet. <laughs> and I, I, I wanted to write in like a very seductive way because the way my grandfather was describing her was like she aroused so much fear, but she was just doing her own thing. So can you please? You know, just enlighten us a little bit about Dr. Buzzard, about the plat eyes, about, you know, your just sort of your own sort of mental journey um, in learning about root work and ghosts and graveyards and the significance of all of this. I'm going to try to because I don't want to get creeped out. It's dark over here and I live alone. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, so, so basically... <laughs> So, so I look around, so, you know what I'm saying? So, but anyways, um, when I was growing up, I grew up in a black Christian Pentecostal household. Mm-hmm. And the only thing about Pentecostals were very emotional, loud, ecstatic people, but we're also very superstitious too. For example, mm-hmm. like if someone dies in the house, you got to lift mm-hmm. up the windows to let the spirit out. Don't let anybody mm-hmm. just touch you. Don't let anybody just make your food. Very superstitious people. Yet at the same time, they thought root work was demonic. They mm-hmm. they, they just, they were like, no, that's evil. And I remember I was speaking to my grandfather about it. And, and, and for the audience members, I'm, I, um, when we were talking about Iris, Iris was um, a woman who wanted my great-grandfather and she and allegedly she did something to make my great grandmother sick. And the story goes that my family had to call upon a local root worker, root doctor, who coincidentally was also from Georgia, which is where I went in the book, to help undo whatever was going on. Because turpentine and all the our other remedies wasn't helping. And for me, it was interesting because I said, if y'all think it's demonic, why did you use it? though to undo whatever you thought was you know what I'm saying? I, mean, I didn't want to ask my grandfather because my grandfather's a bishop I didn't want to be disrespectful I said you know okay I'm gonna let him talk and then I'm gonna go investigate him all you know what I mean find mm-hmm. what he's saying take what he's saying and move um but then when I started when I went to low country I realized that root work and conjure and Christianity they're balanced with each other. There is, they're, they're not antagonists in the story. Um, they're at one point, you know, on the same plantation, it was all happening together. In fact, one mm. of the reasons why there was this dissonance between root work and conjure and Christianity, mind you, root work and conjure, people that do that, a lot of them are Christian. It's not that root work and conjure is not a religion. Mm. Um, when they started migrating to the north. And they started to go to these cosmopolitan cities and they started to go to doctors instead of village healers. Then they started to look at root work and conjure and all that as backwards. So, okay, so maybe that's where this sort of contradiction comes into play. It's the separation from your homeland. It's that displacement, that rootlessness that you were talking about, pun intended, 
where you forget <laughs> your roots, right? So mm -hmm. for me, like when I went down there, I was like, I already was open. Because like I said, when you go to the low country and, and you felt in, in Virginia, so you definitely would feel it in the sea islands where you just feel it's something thick in the air. In fact, sometimes when you talk to people about the ancestors, they talk about them in present tense. When I first started talking to Tiffany, she would talk about them in present tense. And I didn't correct her. I just I took note of it. I just took note of it. Um, mm -hmm. But it was a, definitely a type of thing, I'll say, where I felt protected. There were many times mm -hmm. where I was driving over the highways, over the water by myself, and I just felt, like, protected. Um, mm -hmm. And I also realized that, like, this was a form of survival. So how dare I demonize other Black people's forms of survival? Mm -hmm. So after I went to that part of the country and I learned more about it, I realized that it's not... Now, my grandfather, he can think whatever he wants, but for me... I don't think it's demonic at all. And I and yeah. I incorporate some of it, some of it, um, into my life now. And I don't feel out of tune, out of sync, out of alignment with anything. Yeah. Like as I was reading that passage, I you made me remember something that, you know, in my twenties when I was basically like bouncing all over the country chasing jobs in journalism, um, you know, my aunt Cornelia, who's from North Carolina, um, she passed, but uh, she would say, you know, okay, I'm, I'm going to send a white light of protection over you. Wow. And I was I, you know, and I would be like, okay, okay, whatever. And I was like, oh, like I have a much sort of deeper appreciation for that now after reading your book. So thank you, Morgan. Thank you. I, I, the day my book came out, I, I, I can't see it, but I have a, a white candle. And mm -hmm. and I like I lit it and I asked for protection because white candles are also used in churches, used in a lot of holy places. Mm -hmm. And I opened up the book of the book of Psalms, which is many many you know it's pretty magical. A lot of powerful <laughs> words in there, and I just said a couple mm -hmm. of them. You know what I mean? So that that, that stuff's real, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but if we go back to this idea that like there are these things we have to sort of let go of in order to seem more civilized. Uh -huh. Usually civilized is judged um, you know, by a set of standards that are that are fairly white, right? Uh -huh. Whether it's sort of uh, say, okay, we're, you know, pig feet and chitlins are, are uncivilized or or uh -huh. you know, believing in any kind of hoodoo or root work is is uncivilized. Um, you know, I was thinking about that when I started looking at some of the responses to Black is King on social media. Oh. Because, right, because like now there's a, there's a backlash already, right? And yeah, then now there's this hashtag that's like, Black is not King. And oh, so I'm thinking, what? oh, it's going to be like a bunch of like Nazis and white supremacists, you know, talking about how like Black people are, are terrible as usual. But it's not. Instead, it's like black conspiracy theorists oh. who are like Beyonce is the Illuminati. Oh my God, I'm exhausted. Or you know, or they posted sort of like screen grabs without context from the film. You know, because there's a picture of her wearing sort of cattle. You know, like a, a crown of like cattle yeah. horns, and they're like, oh, she's demonic. She worships Satan. Um, like some of this stuff seems really ridiculous. I mean, like there is a man I saw today, slightly related, who I think has like several hundred thousand followers, who had basically tweeted that Oprah like endorses or like supports witchcraft. And I was like, what in the world is going on? I know. A lot is going on. <laughs> but we still, you know, when it comes to sort of like again, holding both of these things in our minds at the same time, right? That like embracing the, these traditions of African spirituality, like don't necessarily mean uh, that you are a witch or that you are demonic, <laughs> that you worship Satan. Um, but it feels like, you know, there is, 
there's so much cultural illiteracy around these traditions um, that basically what ends up filling in the gaps is assumptions that, oh, because this thing is unfamiliar, it must be bad. It's white supremacy. It's white supremacy and it's colonization. It's not, I mean, granted, I, even though it sounds like I'm contradicting myself because I just said the Great Migration has something to do with it. Well, the Great Migration was also spurred by white supremacy and colonization, oh, yeah. racial terrorism. Yeah. So when people right. talk about, oh, this stuff is demonic, this stuff is, it's like, I just feel like I'm not going to go against what black people use as a form of survival. I'm not, especially from the earth, the earth that our ancestors tilled, the earth that our ancestors are buried underneath, the earth that they sacrificed their lives over. You're not going to hear that from me. It's just, I'm not, I'm not even going to participate in that. Yeah. So there's one more question uh, I want to ask you before we get to audience questions. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, you've got this line in your book where you say, where you're basically sort of asking publicly, why was I binding blackness and oppression together? And what? I think that is a question, like for a lot of us, right? Like we, we so, we just take it for granted. Um, and when I, it just jumped off the page when I saw that line. Um, so like, tell me a little bit about like, about that journey. <laughs> about blackness and oppression? Is that what you say in the question? Was it black? Yes. Oh yeah. God. I'm like, you know, because I'm on, you know, I'm on Twitter. So maybe like, oh, disaggregating. Okay. Well, I will say this. Like, like I said before, like the way that I thought about it, it was at a certain time, black immediately meant slave. Mm -hmm. Blackness meets and totally disenfranchised, rootless, disempowered, totally. And then when you go to Louisiana, you realize um, that's not true. That's not always true. And in fact, it ain't even true in your blood. So now what? <laughs> and that's what it felt like. It just, it just was like, the way that I thought about it was, it was a black-white binary. It is, it is either or. And that's the American system. It's either or. It isn't both ends. Right. Not when you're dealing with black people. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when I thought about blackness, I thought about blackness and, and I want to be clear of what I'm saying, because I don't want to take it out of context, you know, because we both exist also on the Internet. When I say that blackness is met oppression, what I mean by that is in the American context, when you're black, when you know, when you are black, you you're you, like I said, you're disempowered um, right. historically, presently. And then when I went in my history, I was like, no, that wasn't that wasn't always true. So but why wasn't I taught that? And 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 because now I'm not taught that maybe that's why we have these conversations now that are so uncomfortable and we don't want to sit mm. with it because we never made space for the complexity of black American experiences, not experience. When I traveled right. across the country, I realized, yes, we have these unifying forces of land displacement, land theft slash loss, racial terrorism, cultural racial slash amnesia, documentation versus oral history. But also within these regions that I went to, there's also many different distinctions because that is black life. It's a mosaic. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, it's one thing to say black people aren't a monolith. It's another thing to research it to feel it and to find it in your own family tree and to have to humble yourself to be able to complete the work and to get right. out of your own way. So I think that that was, it was such an eye-opening experience for me to write, to research and to write wandering because I realized that when we talk about the black American experience, it's not the black American experience, maybe towards racism, but it's, it's in terms of our historicity, in terms of we're doing this ancestral work, it is, it is multiple experiences and they may you know uh be in conflict with each other but that doesn't mean they, they that doesn't mean that they can't coexist um yeah. and i think that that was really important for me to to really feel deep in my spirit to be able to get the work yeah. done and, and meet my deadline <laughs> yeah i just you know i remember the first time i met a black person who was able to like trace their lineage and they came from like generation after generation after generation of free black people. 
And she just had a whole different carriage about herself. It's just that never even occurred to me. It's just it's it's hard. It's like I, it doesn't make me any less as black, but it's hard because even when I have these discussions online, I, I don't know if many of you heard, none of you know this, but a couple of uh, weeks ago, several weeks. Oh God, how long have I been in lockdown? Maybe two months ago. <laughs> um, I did a thread on Beyonce's lineage because I said, okay, let me take mm. a thread. I said. Beyonce says this. Well, let's just figure it out. Let's see if there was a tie there. And people, some mm -hmm. people are upset. People are like, you doing too much. And I'm thinking, this is genealogical work. And our mm -hmm. ancestors deserve that. Our ancestors deserve to not just skim the surface, to not just retreat when stuff gets uncomfortable. We're, we're supposed to submerge ourselves. We're supposed to delve deep and to render them that, those complexities. So I don't believe in doing too much when it comes to black people's lives. I don't believe in doing too much when it comes to black people's stories because in terms of my conditioning, I've had to give so much space for everybody else. Why can't I give space for black people and what they said to be true, what they held up as veritable truth. And so I don't know where I was going because I feel like I'm getting on my pulpit now. But I think my, but I think my thing is, it's just like, there's so much that we don't know. And I and 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 when I did that and I did that thread, it, it aroused a lot of different emotions. I said, that's the point. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to yeah. be a, I'm not trying to be a provocateur to ruffle feathers mm -hmm. for feathers' sake. What I'm trying to show is that why do we have this discomfort? Is because we just don't like it? Because history doesn't care about our feelings. Is it because it mm -hmm. goes, is it because it goes against what we're talking? Okay, then condemn the public school system. But if we are shaming black Creole people for the stories that have been passed down generation to generation, then we, if we're not careful, we're going to be just as bad as, as bad intentioned white people. If we're mm. not careful that we're going to have this white supremacist thinking of when we think about blackness. And that's what I'm trying to remove myself from. That's the nature of why, why I write in general is to really move past that inscrutability of black people's lives and to get to some type of fullness even if it's irresolute that's why i do the work that i do oh wonderful okay i saw maddie pop back in yep okay so we're good i think we're moving on to audience questions now which is awesome mm -hmm. oh i think you might need to unmute yourself there we go thank oh, you oh there we go uh, thank you both so much for that conversation. That was fantastic. Um, Soraya, thank you for your really thoughtful questions. And Morgan, wow, oh my gosh, I could listen to you talk forever. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's, uh, let's get to these questions. First up, were there any moments in doing this project that you felt uncomfortable in a town or location? If so, how did you handle that? Oh man, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, I, I so I'm very active on Twitter, and one of the things that I never said on Twitter because I'm afraid they're gonna kick me off if I say this um, is because when I went to Oklahoma, um, if any of you don't know this, Oklahoma has or maybe had at one point uh, one of the most sundown towns in the country. And when I went there, um, I, I'm a black woman. I'm only five feet tall. All I went was all I had was my recorder my purse, my cell phone, a rental car, and a prayer. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I mean, I researched and I spoke to people, but I had no idea of the intensity of what I was going through. There were people who literally risked their lives to show me the things they wanted to show me. In fact, on one part of the journey, we were followed, me and other black and indigenous people. When you're out in Oklahoma and you're dealing with discussing the blackness and the five civilized tribes, you're not only have, you might only, you not only may come in contact with the police, but the light horsemen, which the police of the five civilized tribes. And I was driving across these interstates and highways by myself. God only knows how many sundown towns I was crossing. And even though great, you know, I, I treated myself as if I were a teenager. I let everybody know where I was. Friends and family know certain people know where I was. I took pictures of my license plate. I let them know who I was with. And as soon as I got back to my hotel room, and I specified, I specified hotel room, not the hotel. When I got to my hotel room, I let somebody know I was in there. But if I had to do it again, I probably would have carried a gun. I'm not even going to lie. Um, and the reason why I say that is because it just got scary at certain points. 
Um, and I, there were times that there are moments where even now to this day, I'm still emotionally processing what I went through because I was like, how did I make it out of there in one piece? How did I, when you're listening to stories of black people who talk about people disappearing, people being driven off the road, people being out like murdered for, you know, their land allotments. Me as a Harlemite, you know, coming into this territory that, you know, they know I'm not from there. What the hell do I think I'm doing? So I think the way that I protected myself is letting people know where I was. I had a liaison down there who made sure that I chose a hotel that was right next to her, um, her, her home. And I think what helped was just checking in with people. And the great thing about black people, especially black female liaisons, is they really do look out for you. And I did really felt looked out for while I was out there. All right. We've got a couple more questions here. Oh, sorry. I'm just going to, or actually, Morgan, I'm going to mute you while I uh, read the question. The feedback down. Perfect. All right. Next question. How does it feel to be putting this book out when America is going through this major moment of reckoning? That's from Nicole. Oh, hi, Nicole. Um, it's funny. I got a little anecdote to talk about. So um, I was really into tarot cards earlier this year. And my book was originally slated to come out May 12th. Um, and I remember like when the pandemic was just, when the lockdown just started to happen at the end of March, um, I got in touch with a tarot card reader that I really liked from YouTube. And I remember she showed, she was doing the cards and she was like, I said, she was, as I said about the book, she's like, I sense a delay, but it's going to be good. It's going to come out at the right time. Literally two hours after that reading, I get an email from my editor asking if they could move the book to August. <laughs> and um, at first I was nervous because I was just like, oh, I guess we can try to pin it to travel logs because it's still the summer. But then the protests happened. Um, and, you know, this, this reckoning across industries happened. And I am happy that my book is finding um, a home with people. You know, one of the things, the reason why I wanted to write this book is I wanted people to understand that black Americans, we should have been annihilated many times over, but you still have these communities, albeit vulnerable communities who are still fighting, whether it's through their oral storytelling, whether it's through their activism on the ground. And I wanted people to understand the devastation from coast to coast of what we have endured as a people, but also the resilience of triumph because it's because of that resilience of triumph and people opening up to me that I was able to document it in this book. So I'm, I'm, I'm really happy of the coverage. I'm over the moon happy of the coverage that is receding. But I, what I do hope is that it's not just a moment in time, like a snapshot. I hope people understand that the cyclical nature of the systemic violence that we are experiencing, the, bl the black rage that's happening because of the white backlash to black mobility and black autonomous living, all of this is a cycle. And if I hope that this book can be a tool that we can use now and in the future to say, if we don't really reckon with the magnitude of this loss, it's going to keep happening. We're going to keep moving. We're going to keep having our rage. And it's just going to it's just going to keep echoing. Next question from Yamisi. Did you encounter native black connections in your family? It's one of the narratives which isn't seen in collective history. So I'm not gonna spoil it. You gotta buy the book. You got to buy the book. But <laughs> like I, so one of the things that I talk about in Oklahoma, I started off by saying that so many black people that I know talk about they got a little Indian in them. And the, the tribe they always say is Cherokee. And I've heard this, many of the people I knew heard this, and I used to roll my eyes and I was like, oh, y'all know what y'all talking about. Y'all just think because I have a certain grade of hair or you have like a reddish undertone that y'all had this. But this is something I wasn't taught in, 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 in high school and in, in grade school, whatever, is that when former President Andrew Jackson forced uh, Native American tribes to move west of the Mississippi into Indian Territory, which is now known as Oklahoma, there were black people on that journey with them. The five civilized tribes, it was the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, the Seminole, and the Creek. And there were enslaved Africans with them. And there were uh, refugees, black fugitives from rice plantations, like in the Low Country, that went along this journey with them. 
And so these five civilized tribes came from the South. Cherokee Nation, Cherokee, Cherokee tribe was the largest slaveholding tribe out of all five of them. So I said to myself, if it is the case that these five civilized tribes, their migratory trajectories overlap of black people's migratory trajectories, then are all of our grandmothers lying about these indigenous ties? And so I use that question as a focal point to sort of help guide me through the journey of finding these indigenous ties. And I did find some surprising revelations along the way. And I'm going to leave that as a cliffhanger. So you buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last question here. Um, oh, sorry. I'm going to meet you real quick just for the feedback. Okay. It's really fascinating to hear you talk about driving through these areas. Did the research for this book make you reconsider road trips? I think you addressed this a bit in the first one, in your first question, but um, maybe if you can say more. Um, yeah, I think, well, now I'm think reconsidering travel in general because of the pandemic and the lockdown. I have huge wanderlust. Like this is the time I really wanna travel. But to this day, like I think to myself, how in the hell um, did I go through these trips and nothing happened to me? How? I don't know. Oh, and even me, like, how did I just decide to do this? I think it's just a matter of like, I knew I had the deadline to reach. I knew that I was giving money through a book deal to finish this damn book. And I had to do what I had to do. But it makes me reconsider roaches because it makes me think about how much I don't know what is beneath the surface. I don't know the towns I'm passing through. We're even stopping at a gas station. I'm from New Jersey. We don't pump our gas. We're even stopping at a gas station could be dangerous. We're even stopping at a restaurant or going to the bathroom somewhere can be seen as dangerous. This is why the Negro Motorist Green Book was so important for us to, to stay alive. Um, and so I think with the research for this book, it has me reconsider road trips because it isn't just a matter of looking at a map. It isn't just a matter of, you know, figuring out what exit to get off of. What is this town? What is the history of this town? How many white people are there? You know, is it a sundown town? Because sundown town still exists. So for me, it's like I saw I realized for me as an African-American woman and as an African-American female traveler, the past and the present collapse into one another when I think about travel and just movement in general, because so much has been done to curtail movement for people like me. So road trips can be very perilous. It can also be freeing at times, but it's definitely something that I know that I, I can never take lightly again. Well, all right. I think that's that was our last question from the audience, but I just wanted to ask Soraya, do you have any last questions for Morgan? I don't know if I have any like 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 formal questions. I do want to invite you over to come to Bedside at some point when it's safe for a bowl of gumbo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Please. Oh my God. Oh that's yeah. all. that'd be wonderful. Um I guess we could I guess I'll just say, you know, thank you all for the 51 people that decided to come in tonight from all across the country or maybe the world. Thank you so much for taking the time to, you know, hear me chat with uh, Soraya. Um, thank you to Skylight Books for just hosting me tonight. I'm just really thankful that my book is finding a home with people. I'm really over the moon excited and I'm just thankful for the support it's getting. I'm thanking for, you know, just making space for these black people's lives. Um, and yeah, just thank you. I'm, I'm just, I'm really grateful. Oh, thank you, Morgan. Thank you, Soraya. Uh, thank you to the audience so much for being here tonight. We really appreciate your presence and all of your comments and your thoughtful questions. Um, we hope we can do this again in person someday soon. Morgan and Soraya, you have a standing invitation. Come on back to LA. Oh, yes. We'll, we'll get you some treats. Um, oh. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that's a little green room inside joke. Uh, <laughs> Um, but yeah, I just want to say again, thank you all for coming out. This uh, event will be available for replay just a few minutes after it ends. So you can share the link around to anyone who couldn't be here tonight. Um, I hope you uh, tell everybody about Morgan's book. Yeah, thank all you right. so much. All right, Let's say goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram.
Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.